0: Well, amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's wonderful to think about and praise our great God and Savior who has the power to redeem and save sinners. I hope you're encouraged to hear that testimony from Marsha and to see God at work in applying his sufficient blood to even save Scott. And and again, our God is patient. He is long-suffering, not wishing anyone should perish, but all to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And just what a marvelous testimony of faithful stewardship over the years uh, through Marsha. And uh, I just love Stewardship Month for that reason. It's just a reminder to, to especially highlight in our church family just some of the ways that God is continuing at work in His saving power in and through His people. And, and to see stories like Marcia's and uh, many others like last week uh, that just remind us again how God is at work in our church family. You know, last week we, we, as we launched Stewardship Month, which is again godly responsibility with accountability. We provided a little stewardship devotional booklet. If you didn't get that, you can pick one up and as you leave, uh, they have them available uh, in which we emphasize and has been an emphasis in our church for the last 45 years, these principles that God owns everything and you own nothing. And uh, to even remember that and uh, the the reality of that, uh, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your health, this all first comes from the Lord, that God entrusts you with everything you have. And you can either increase or diminish what God has given you. And God wants you to increase it. And so again, you think about Marcia's testimony and where her marriage was at years ago. She could be faithful to that trust. For a time, her husband is an unbeliever. How am I going to increase the opportunities that I have to represent Christ to my spouse? Jesus says that's an entrustment. That you've been entrusted with that specific marriage for you to represent. And you can either increase it or decrease it. You can bear fruit spiritually or not. And God can call you into account at every time. And that was, again, one of the things about Scott's testimony. Immediately when he became a believer, how long before was he attending church faithfully? Like right away. Because he understood God could call him out of account in any time. He was getting there early, right? How long it before he was joining a group to continue to spiritually grow right away, right? And then the reality of God in his wisdom chose to call Scott even just a shortly time after becoming a Christian. Again, we don't know our day or an hour, but the Lord does, and he can call you into account at any time. This is how we live faithfully as stewards, as believers. We have the responsibility from God and the accountability from God, and we encourage you and everyone in our church family to be memorizing these principles and to think about how can I actively apply them in every area of my life, in my marriage, with my kids, with my finances. See, it, it's not just about money. And that's what Pastor Viers even reminded us last week. There's the stewardship of, for example, the mission that God has given us. God has entrusted every believer with the mission to make disciples. And you can be faithful to that mission to increase it or decrease it. And you're going to be called an account. How are you doing to live missionally? But it also applies to our abilities, our health, our relationships, our work. And even as we talk about today, as you looked at the notes, the stewardship of our personal discipline. And you may be going, ouch, Like already I'm feeling the, the weight of this. I just had the Halloween candy bowl last night, and I'm remembering personal discipline, and Thanksgiving's coming up, and personal discipline. Well, God's Word has a lot to say about personal discipline. And like many of you, this is an area we can all grow in, myself included. I can think about many times where in my life... I wasn't exactly the best steward of personal discipline. College students, you might remember those times, handing in those papers that are still warm off the printer just in time for class, right? Maybe because you procrastinated a little bit. Or the time where, you know, you're, you're writing a speech on a napkin because you forgot that was today. Or the time that you're, uh, again, trying to be uh, proactive and especially uh, meeting somebody else's needs and then you forget you made a different commitment to somebody else. You weren't very disciplined in managing your schedule and all of a sudden you feel the anxiety building up of, I committed to too many things and I can't meet them all. There's all sorts of ways we can grow in personal discipline. And with that in mind, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to First Timothy chapter 4, First Timothy chapter 4. That's on page 163 of the back section of the Bible in the chair in front of you, First Timothy chapter 4. If you need a Bible, please feel free to use that Bible under the chair in front of you. To take it home, write your name in it. And we want everybody to have God's word. Uh, but where we're at in 1 Timothy 4, Paul is nearing the end of his life. He's toward the end of his ministry. Uh, Timothy is one of his most trusted disciples who he's writing to. And so God has entrusted Timothy with a lot, and Paul is entrusting him with a lot, and he gives him some very important and difficult assignments of fixing some challenges and problems in some local churches that have been established. And not surprising, giving our study in Second Peter 2 this year, some in these churches followed false teaching. And so part of the context is a reminder again of how do we be personally disciplined and how we respond to teaching that is contrary to God's Word. But in this context of sort of false teaching and personal growth for a pastor, God gives a wonderful picture of what personal discipline looks like. And so follow along. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 for some context, and uh, we're going to read through verse 10, but I'm going to focus my my time especially on verses 6 through 10 this morning. This is the word of the Lord, beginning of verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, again, here's, and trust me, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, and pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men especially of believers. This is the word of the Lord this morning. So this morning we're going to be looking at the stewardship of personal discipline, and I want us to focus on three steps to be a good steward of your personal discipline. The question of how can we be good stewards, especially for Christ Jesus, this is the question that Paul is helping to explain to Timothy, how he can be a model of good stewardship as an example to the church in a position of leadership. And so the first point he's going to make is by making sure you're going to be having the right goal. To be a good steward requires you to have the right goal. And for Paul, he's reminding him the goal is primarily especially to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's the goal. Be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's the purpose. See, when you know your goal, it helps you to take the appropriate steps of the discipline that is needed in your life to accomplish that goal. For example. Project managers, you constantly keep the goal of an agreed deliverable to the customer. In your mind, you're thinking about the product or the service, and you're evaluating every decision, every resource allocation, every personnel toward that goal. Will this accomplish the goal? Right? It guards against scope creep. It ensures good stewardship of resources. Teachers, you think first about the learning goals or objectives, And then based on those objectives, those goals, you then plan the day-to-day, week-by-week, monthly discipline that's going to be needed for each week to be disciplined to accomplish that goal. For those of you who play sports, you know this well. Every sport, you think about first, what is the goal of the sport, right? Not every athlete disciplines themselves in exactly the same way because the goal for the need for the body is different. For example, sprinters discipline themselves in a particular way for explosive speed. They discipline their bodies to be finely tuned toward that goal and that purpose. Very different than, for example, a swimmer or a heavy weightlifter. And we know this principle be true. And similarly, wise stewards, as we think about God's goal for Christ Jesus, they focus on the goal every day of being a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's their goal. I want to serve Christ in a godly way today. And this goal keeps you focused then in evaluating every decision and every resource through the lens of will that help me accomplish that goal? Look at this in verses 6 and 7. See, in in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. There it is. That's what you'll be. There's the goal. You're going to be nourished on the word of faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following, but having nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. So we focus on having the right goal. And God teaches us how to accomplish this goal. And, And first, he's going to focus on, well, you're going to have to reject the false teaching. And you go, whoa. We just did a whole series on 2 Peter, and it was like filled with false teaching, and here's false teaching again. Well, it's pretty common, and and this is one of the most common ways people get their goals messed up in their life. They're not focused on the right things. See, false teaching provides you a different goal. It says this is what matters most. This is what you should be paying attention to, and as you look at the passage in our context in verses 1 through 5, what are the false teachers saying they should pay the most attention to? things like how they abstain from marriage, things like certain types of food. And they're saying that these things are what most important. And these things are then for how you discipline your life. But following false teaching is totally opposed to faithful stewardship because you have a different goal. You pay attention to different things if you're a Christian. See, think about if everybody followed the goal of not being married and having children, and that was the measure of spiritualness. That would have like, significant implications for humanity, wouldn't it? And also the reality, too, of the mission. Right? We talked about mission of making disciples. It's kind of hard to make disciples if there's no people that are being produced. Right? God created the gift of marriage as a gift, and procreation as a gift. Think about, again, the goal of eating only certain foods, this goal would lead to all kinds of personal discipline that might squander opportunities for hospitality that you might have, or to show Christian love to others in ways that they have different consciences related to food. Food is a gift. See, but the goal is not eating only certain foods. So it's not about, you know, whether or not you really want Pastor Brent's brisket or Pastor Vires pizza or a kale salad. That's not the most important goal. He says a better goal is whatever we eat or whatever we drink or whatever we do, we're doing it for what purpose? The glory of God as good servants of Jesus. So I want you to think about then in your own life, what sort of teaching might impact you to have a different goal that then leads you to discipline your life toward things that actually are not what's best. So think about in Marcia's testimony. What are some goals that Are not necessarily bad goals, they're good goals, but they're not the best goal for stewardship. In her case, think about in her marriage, for over 20 years, one of the goals could be, right? I want to see my husband change. Is that a bad goal? Not necessarily. But is that the best goal for her? What's going to encourage her to discipline herself? So the day that she, day one after she becomes a Christian and says, I'm going to start representing Jesus to my husband, but he doesn't change. What's going to continue to keep me to persevere? Well, it's not about my husband's change. That's not what motivates me to do this. It's pleasing Jesus and being a good servant of him. So when day two happens and he doesn't change, if the goal is my husband didn't change, I'm going to be discouraged. I'm going to think, what's the point? I should just give up. I should just quit. No, the goal is to be a good servant of Jesus. And think about, again, the goal of meeting the needs or interests of others. It's a good goal. But sometimes the interests of other people are contrary to the goals of God. Sometimes what people prefer and what they want isn't actually what's best. And again, to discipline yourself to determine what are the best goals in my life that God gives me is to be a good servant for him and to glorify him no matter the situation. Because if you have the goal, I make it my goal to please people. As Pastor Nitschke was reminding us in Jeremiah 17, that's like a desert, right, spiritually. Because people have all kinds of changing desires, all kinds of changing thoughts. And so then you're going to be disciplining and making all kinds of decisions only to give people what they want to hear, disciplining your time to please the most people, to get relationships for the purpose of helping you. Again, not the best goal. Or or think about the goal of I want to make money. Money, again, is a gift from the Lord, but it's not the best goal. And if you make money, your end goal, it's going to affect how you discipline your work, how you discipline relationships, how you discipline opportunities. And you're going to focus primarily on financial profit, foregoing opportunities of spiritual profit, thinking of like discipling your children, serving and building up the body of Christ. See, a better goal is what God gives us, to be a servant. And so does your personal discipline reflect that you're paying attention to the right goal? See, we put the right goal before our face, and as Christians, we constantly put the right goal before each other's face, and that's what Paul's doing here for Timothy, right? Pay attention to this, not these other things. See, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous from the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to remind us of this fact that we usually don't put the right goal before us. None of us do. All of us fall short. None of us glorify God as we should. And this is a reminder why we need a perfect steward, the Lord Jesus Christ, why we need his blood applied to us. And that only comes through faith and trust in him. See, God offers us a greater goal of pleasing God and living for his glory than pleasing ourselves and living for our own. And so if you have the right goal, you're going to reject other goals that are presented to you and all kinds of false teaching. And instead, you're going to need to go to what God gives you to accomplish the goal of being a good servant and pleasing him. And you're going to invest in studying the scriptures because you understand these are the resources that God gives you as a believer to grow and to accomplish the goal that God has given us in Christ Jesus. See, when you're practicing spiritual disciplines— you're going to know you're going to need spiritual nourishment. Discipline requires nourishment. It requires resources. You know, I remember my senior year at track, I had just raced at a high-level competition, and I had been training. I ran the 110 high-meter hurdles. And I had been training up the morning. We ran that race. And immediately I noticed something because of the personal discipline required, I started feeling weak, you know, and kind of like sick to my stomach, you know, where you get the, like the food pains, you know, that you're starting to get lightheaded. And I begin to say, I need nourishment. And so I had to make an investment, right? If I wanted to accomplish the goal of my best personal time, I needed to make an investment. And so what did I do? I went to the food stand and I purchased a hot dog. And my coach comes to me and he sees me sitting in the stands, stuffing my face with this hot dog. And he's going, what are you doing? Your next race is about to start, right? You're, the heat's on. And I said to my coach, coach, I just needed some nourishment. And guess what happened? I ran the best time of my life. See, see, see Christians who, who want to be good stewards understand they need nourishment when they're disciplining themselves. But spoiler alert, what are the things that God says we need to be nourished by? It's not a hot dog, based on the text. (laughs) So all of you who had those Sam's Club lunch appointments, you can cancel them, right? What, What is he saying? Nourished on words of faith and sound doctrine. See, words of faith, uh, I think, means the meaning of individual passages he's focusing on. So you're, you're focusing on, the, the for example, what does it mean to be a good steward is being a student of the word. So I know, for example, how to be nourished when somebody says, right, what does Genesis 1, 26 to 28 teach me about marriage, teach me about sexuality, I'm nourished by that but I'm also nourished by what the whole council teaches of God's word, the sound doctrine, the the coordinating several passages for my life as a Christian to live wisely. And and so think of, again, what the whole Bible teaches on a particular area to address present-day concerns or questions, like what does the Bible teach about anxiety? How do I honor God and be a good steward and a faithful servant when I'm anxious? See, that requires sound doctrine. See, some personal application for you to grow in personal discipline, to grow spiritually, is thinking especially about the way the Word of God is in your life and how you use it and how you steward it. What application could be, I want to take a step to, to join like a, a faith group. If I'm a member of a church where I get to learn and grow in the Word, to join a Bible study, to be involved in mentoring so I can grow in both the understanding of meanings of individual passages, but also to, to grow and have a better understanding of what all of God's Word teaches. We, we do a faith biblical counseling training conference every year here in person and online. That could be a very helpful step for your personal nourishment to see how God's word can impact in every area of your life to help you grow to become more like Jesus. But there's also other opportunities like Faith Community Institute classes on Wednesday evenings. Pastor Wetterland, for example, is teaching one on the storyline of the whole scriptures right now. Or our our deacon Saul Green is teaching one on the book of 1 Samuel, right? Each of these are opportunities to be nourished by the Word. Maybe you need to invest in a good study Bible to help you with this as well in your own personal time in the Word. There are many examples in our church family who are people who are seeking to do this, seeking to be nourished by the Word. I I got several texts this week from a variety of college students who were saying, this is what God was teaching me in the Word. What were they doing? They were focusing on particular passages in a book of the Bible and were thinking about what was most excellent and then encouraging people with those specific words of truth in their sphere of influence, personal discipline. I was talking with one member of our church who has an unbelieving spouse and when I talked with them and was just checking in on them, you know, she immediately began to share just what God's whole word was teaching about the importance of prayer in her life. See, what was happening was she was being nourished by the sound doctrine of what all God's word teaches about prayer in the life of the believer. And she was thinking about that. And she was filled with joy even in the midst of the challenges that she's seeing right now in her marriage See, see, that's what it looks like. We're nourished, and it helps us with the goal. So when we have the right goal and we pursue the right means then, and, and so God wants us then to pursue the correct means when we understand the right goal, and that means is godliness. You know, Oswald Sanders wrote, spiritual ends can be only achieved by spiritual men who employ spiritual methods. And that's what Paul is focusing on here. If you want the goal of godliness, there are spiritual means methods that God says we have to use in order to get that goal that can't be achieved in other ways. See, 1 Timothy reminds us, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for both the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance So Paul uses this language of a a gym, workout language, to make a point about being a good steward. Paul is not anti-body. Our good God made each of our physical bodies. They are a gift from the Lord. At other points in the Bible, God's going to tell us our bodies are instrumental. They're to be used in offering, pleasing worship. God commands us to glorify God in our bodies. Or the temple in which the Spirit dwells, our bodies... However, God also reminds us, though, that we need to recognize the limited value, especially of bodily discipline. See, he's not saying there's no value, but he is saying physical training through personal discipline of the body is of some value. But is slight in comparison to the value of personal discipline in godliness. Think about it especially in the sense of the extent, in the extent. So Scott, in his testimony, was working out in the gym for quite some time, but did working out in the gym help him to become a godly husband that his wife, Marcia was hoping to see fruit for years and years and years and years? No. Right? But it led to an opportunity for growing in godliness, so there was some profit for him to be physically training, but there can only do so much in extent. Physical training might help me give you the strength to open the pickle jar, to lift my children up during playtime, to give me more strength to serve others in particular ways with the strength that God supplies. But it provides little strengthening for you spiritually to respond in Christ-likeness to situations that tempt you, to respond with sinful anger or sinful speech. I know a lot of physically trained people who can control their bodies but are not able to control their sinful desires, they are disciplined and they're mature physically, But their speech is wild, unwholesome, like an infant throwing a tantrum when they don't get what they want. See, physical discipline is limited in its value to help you desire, for example, to pray to God in moments of trials and tribulation. Physical training holds little value for you when certain sufferings strip you of your physical strength, like a disability or a cancer, right, or aging. Physical training in those moments especially is of little value to you. But godliness holds value in all these circumstances and situation. See, bodily exercise is limited in its influence. It cannot renew the desires day by day, the inner man. It's also limited in its duration. It's limited in its duration. Think of our current bodies right now, and our current condition is only for this earthly life. Our bodies are plagued with indwelling sin. And the effects of living in a sin curse in a world of suffering. This body, God's word says, must be clothed imperishably as a new glorified resurrected spiritual body that is fit for eternity and a new creation that God is establishing. And so to serve as good servants of Jesus forever, we need to remember these things about this present body and its condition. Compare that with godliness. Why stewards are acknowledging the value of godliness in comparison this summer when we studied 2 Peter, we saw this attribute. Godliness was needed to be supplied to our saving faith. It's important for us then to reflect on what does godliness mean. He says, Godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so what does a godly person do? They, they live in active awareness of God being with them. They have a desire to respond in a way that is pleasing to God. I find the phrase, if you may have heard of it, corum Deo, the Latin phrase, before God or in front of God, is a helpful way, I think, that describes the idea of what a godly person thinks and how they live. The idea is that God is always with us, and we are keenly aware of his presence so that we take actions that honor him. When you heard about Scott's testimony, even in the baptismal, what was changing about his worldview? As he faced the challenges and the health challenges that were coming up, he said, It says Jesus was with me. Did you hear that in his testimony? I mean, again, he's thinking about being in the presence of the Lord always and that the Lord is always watching and he's making it his goal to please him in everything. But it has profit for the present circumstances. For this life now, godliness has profit. So thinking about godliness as a single person, it will help me be a good servant of Christ with my time, with my relationships, to bear spiritual fruit in my life and in the lives of others. Pursuing this gold holds promise. It's profitable for all things for me right now. But think if you value more disciplining yourself physically to be attractive or to be desired by somebody else. Right? Not necessarily in itself a bad goal, but it's not the best goal. See, but disciplining yourself just to be physically attractive to somebody is not going to be as helpful for you to be a godly spouse to that person that you hope to be with. What helps you with that? Godliness. Well, helps you to be a godly parent, godliness. And, and to think about some of those in our church family that I'm so encouraged by to see singles who are disciplining themselves toward godliness, valuing what God values the most, and seeing the fruit that that brings to the lives of others around them. Those, for example, serving in all kinds of ways. Our college students and children's ministries, they're disciplining themselves toward godliness. That's what they value most. Godliness will also help you as a parent to have the wisdom, to respond in Christ-likeness to your children. It holds profit for that present life, not only because you know what to say and how to parent your children on what is right and best, but you yourself are going to be an example to your kids of godliness that they're going to see lived out every single day. Think about, uh, again, those in our church family. It's been sweet to see so many who are young families teaching and modeling for their kids godliness in their life that takes a lot of work. As Marcia said in her testimony, those two kids, it's hard. It's hard because it reveals your own desires. It reveals your own weaknesses, and God is using that to grow you in godliness, and you can have much fruit in the lives of your kids. Godliness will also help you show christ likeness when you're suffering, when you're caring for those who are suffering in your life as well. Think of grandparents. Think of parents. Think of children. Think of friends. See, physical training might be able to help you move your loved one when they are infirmed, but it will not comfort your inner man, your heart, in the face of death. Physical training doesn't do that. See, godliness profits you with wisdom to be able to navigate those deep struggles of life with hope, with confidence in God, confidence in His promises, confidence in His purposes. Godliness profits to strengthen your spirit with courage, to share the gospel, to represent Jesus in times of affliction. Physical training doesn't do that. Godliness profits you to respond with patience, with love and truth, even when you're sinned against, instead of contributing to problems sinfully. You can be a peacemaker. You can be a reconciler in relationships and suffering. And again, to think about those in our church family who are are doing this, they're being personal stewards of discipline, especially in trials. You know, for some of the, the families that even this week are suffering who've lost loved ones, as I'm on the phone with them just to hear about what immediately comes to mind are our scriptures, our truths about the character of God, truths about way they've seen God at work in others' lives, thankfulness and gratitude for, for the lives of loved ones. That just doesn't happen. As a pastor, when I compare a believer versus an unbeliever and how they respond to death in the face of their loved ones, it is a totally different contrast. How did that come out of their heart, come out of their mind, come out of their thoughts? It's this. They had disciplined their mind toward godliness throughout their life. They had disciplined their tongue toward godliness. They disciplined their heart, their inner person, with the promises and being nourished on the word of God. So what comes out in these moments of affliction? Godliness, hope, Christ-likeness. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. And that shares so much more profit in that moment for their family, for their friends, than physical discipline will ever. See, the profits are not just here and now, but they're also for the things to come. Wise stewards are pursuing that will last for eternity. And godliness is a benefit that will bless you for all eternity and result in the spiritual reward for all eternity as well. And appreciate the significance that he says of the statement. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That, that phrase it is a trustworthy statement. Paul uses this five times in his letters in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. There's these memorable sayings in these pastoral letters. These are called sort of the five faithful sayings. These pastoral letters Paul wrote again at the end of his life, and by this time many churches existed. But they're, at this point, not a completed Bible yet. So the New Testament, much of it hadn't been written. But they had developed, as Christians, certain sayings that helped them to confess and live faithfully as good stewards, that they would remind one another, encourage one another daily with these types of faithful sayings, almost like miniature little confessions that they would remind themselves of what was true. And this is one of them. Think about, at this time, in the Greek culture, they worshipped sport. They worshipped fitness. They worshipped feats of strength. And Christians confessed and reminded themselves and one another that, what? Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Sounds a little bit like today too, right? can value a lot these things. And yet God's saying, this is what is faithful. You need to be reminded of. So stewardship of our communication matters. And we need to steward each other and uh, build each other up by way of reminder, like things like this. And so why, why, for example, memorizing the stewardship principles? It's sort of like these faithful sayings that help capture the principles of stewardship in the scriptures that help us as a church family to live faithfully. And that's what Paul is doing here in his letter too. These faithful sayings that they've reminded themselves over at times of temptation. And so one takeaway might be for you to study these faithful sayings, like the one we have today the, in the other letters, 1 Timothy 1.15, 1 Timothy 3.1, 1 Timothy 4.8-9, which is our text today, Titus three 5 through 8 So these faithful sayings, you can memorize these yourselves and begin to then put them into practice and to steward these faithful sayings well. Finally, God tells us we have to pay and be prepared to pay the high cost in personal discipline. See, it's for this we labor and strive. It's not going to be easy. We labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Everything has a cost. and every decision you make, there is an opportunity cost. And we must decide which price we want to pay. The Lord clearly wants us to pay the cost associated with disciplining ourselves toward godliness. It's worth all the labor and all the strife we invest. Why? Because we have our hope fixed on our living God. See, ancient Greece was full of fake gods, dead gods, false gods. But God reminds his student, Timothy, their hope should be fixed on the living God are active, who's one who's active in our lives today, who's present with us, who is above us and with us. Our hope is fixed on him. Why? Because he is the Savior. He's the one who saves all believers. Verse 10 sounds a little strange. In what sense is God the Savior of all men, especially of believers? There are two basic ways to understand this, but here's one, the common element, no matter how you take this phrase. Believers, all believers are saved. This connects the mission message last week, right? Our our mission is to become faithful disciples so others might be saved. And, And the stewardship testimony today reminds us no one earns their way to heaven. And it's not just by going to church. It's personally believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and what Christ has done on the cross to make us alive again by dying in our place to forgive us of our sin and raising to life to make us right with God and if you know Christ, the Savior and Lord, you can praise him and then you can thank him for helping you recognize your need for Christ. But there's a reminder that those who especially experience the salvation of God and are saved from their sins are those who only believe in Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. And in this last month, I've had conversations with a number of people, some who are dying, some who are on the path of just starting a path of foolishness in their life. And they're reaping the consequences, and you're praying and you're having conversations with them uh, of their need for salvation, their need to rely on the Lord and trust in the Lord Jesus. Because there's a reality, there's a weight of that. Because I I think about that fourth stewardship. God can call you into account today. Right? And that burden that I feel for these individuals, that I want them to understand they need salvation. And apart from Christ, there is no salvation, there is no rescue. See, neither one was ready to confess that they're in sinner and need of a savior, and my prayer is that they would before it's too late. And Marsha Butler's testimony, though today, was a powerful one, reminding of this. Faithfully attending church, even when Scott did not, what was she thinking about? She was disciplining her life for the purpose of godliness. Again, just imagine praying for decades for the salvation of her husband. And what continues to help her to do that? She's disciplining herself for the right goal, just to be a good servant of Jesus. Even when it seems like God's not answering the prayer, God's not answering the prayer, God's not answering the prayer, 20 years plus later, God answers and he saves Scott. See, you know that it must have been challenging to live in that situation, to live with an unbeliever who acted like an unbeliever until Scott came to Christ. And they attended one Christmas Eve service together, and then shortly following, God called him home. What an amazing change, though. What an encouragement to those waiting for a loved one to respond to the gospel that our God is a God who saves. But friends, you may be longing for a person to trust Christ in your life, and it's hard because you want your home to be all about Jesus. Jesus. You want your home to be filled with Christ talk and godly speech and godly action, but it's not. Well, you can take hope in a living God who is saving people and transforming them through the power of the Spirit. Pursue godliness as a good steward. Let that be your focus. Marsha heard these words and this message, these principles of stewardship for over 20 years and was seeking just to live them faithfully. But if you've been resisting and maybe you've heard the good news of Jesus many times, but you're struggling to believe it. I encourage you. God says this is the work of God, that you believe on Jesus whom God has sent. Finally, the other part of this phrase, God provides common grace to the lost. See, both ways of handling the statement, God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers, say that God is the Savior of all believers. But the question is, namely, in what way is he saving or delivering all human beings? Well, I think in this case, it's a reminder of the theological truth that we call common grace. It means that in one way or another, God, by every person, everybody experienced to some degree God's protection, God's care, right, God's provision for their life. They may not even recognize it, but it happens. And God is, in fact, the only Savior. Yet it's another reminder that we should be willing to pay the high cost because apart from personal faith and trust in Christ, though, they cannot experience salvation from their sins. So they might experience physical deliverance and physical rescue in all kinds of ways in their life from an accident in a car to a health scare and yet they personally haven't experienced personal salvation from their sin apart from faith in Jesus. And so we want to be good stewards in that to make sure that everybody who experiences God's common grace can experience God's saving grace in their life as well. Well, I hope today is just a reminder again of faithful stewardship and the importance, especially personal discipline in our own life. And I hope that you're thinking of what are the takeaways that I have, not just to be a hearer of the word today, but a doer of the word, and how my personal discipline is motivating me toward greater godliness in my life. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, being the perfect steward on our behalf, having been given everything into his hands who was willing to still suffer and die on the cross for our sins so that we could be made right with you. And only by faith in him can we be called faithful stewards by faith. And so, God, we ask today that for those who don't know Jesus Christ, that today would be their day of salvation. Lord, I pray that they would, the, the words that even Scott reminded them, the OKs that they've been living, maybe in ways that are opposed to God, that they would regret those things and they would turn from their ways. And, and Lord, want to follow you. We praise you that we can be good stewards if we remember that our discipline results in being a good servants of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to reject false teaching as we pursue godliness, the better goal. Help us to remember the value of physical discipline, but also to remind ourselves of also its limited value in comparison to godliness. And just like any type of stewardship, Lord, Lord, we understand there's a cost. It's going to cost us effort. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us work. And we understand that you are working in and through us as we live by faith in counting the cost. But Lord, help us to fix our hope on our living God. Help us to think especially about all the ways your grace has been at work in our life. And let that encourage us to be faithful, to continue to apply personal discipline in our own life toward godliness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.